scripture reading for this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the same way that the Son you created raises us from our sleep every day, would you cause the word that you have given to raise us from our spiritual slumber, that we might more and more love you and magnify your name in all we do. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're uh, getting near the end of our series on gospel culture, looking at a culture of grace, what that looks like in the life of a church. Let me remind you real quick of uh, our definitions and then kind of give a recap of where we've been. First, a couple definitions, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine, the message of divine grace for undeserving sinners. It's the gospel. The message of divine grace for undeserving sinners. That's gospel doctrine. Gospel culture. The shared experience of divine grace by undeserving sinners. So gospel doctrine, the message. Gospel culture, the shared experience of that message among the undeserving sinners who by grace and grace alone have received it and believed it. So where have we been over the last few weeks? We started by looking at Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. And, and we saw the, the prodigal son who had gone far away, was in the distant country returning to the father, the father running out to meet him. That parable in a long series of three parables in which Jesus was demonstrating that not only was Jesus 
come in order to seek and find lost sinners. But when those lost sinners were found, all heaven rejoiced. And in the parable of the prodigal son, the father representing God was rejoicing. Rejoicing. He threw a feast to celebrate the fact that this son of his that was lost is now found. And of course, that parable ends, Luke 15 ends, with Jesus in the parable talking about the older brother who represented the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the religious types. And in the parable, the father's going out and inviting the older brother into the house to share in the father's joy as well. And we kind of put ourselves there in the place of the older brother. And and we asked ourselves, will we enter into the father's joy over sinners who repent? Recognizing that because we too end up in the far country, either in our hearts or literally off in our sin, the father likewise rejoices when we come home. And so looking at gospel culture to begin with was just recognizing that, that, that foundationally gospel culture is where prodigals, every one of us prodigals, share together in the Father's joy whenever prodigals come home. So that was the first week. We looked then at Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Uh, We reflected on the fact that by God's grace, this is a very welcoming community. That's one of the first things that I experienced when I visited here. Many of you have come to me over the years and said, man, I've never been around a church that's this welcoming. They're actually a friendly group of people. And, And what we said was, you know what? What we experience here at Grace Church is akin to what someone who visits, visits Letchworth State Park experiences having never been to the Grand Canyon. Letchworth is marvelous. It's beautiful. It's not the Grand Canyon. And what the Bible offers us in terms of gospel culture is not a Letchworth experience of gospel culture, but a Grand Canyon experience of gospel culture, such that a gospel culture church is a place where people welcome one another as Christ has welcomed them into their very lives, into their heart all for the glory of God. And then we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which says, stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we said that in a church where gospel culture is growing, people are encouraging, even, you know, literally provoking one another to stay on the journey to keep journeying together to the Grand Canyon so that we can experience this gospel culture that God has for us. And then last week, we looked at 1 John 1, 5 to 9, which says that if we will walk in the light, if we'll be real about who we are and love one another as Scripture calls us to love one another, if we will walk in the light, bring the things out of the darkness that we want to hide there and just be who we are, We will have fellowship with one another. We will be the fellowship of sinners that we are and be able to live together not pretending that we're something other than what we are, but be together as sinners saved by grace. 
So now we're looking at this passage in Colossians chapter 3, where, where Paul in Colossians 3, just like the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, just like John in 1 John chapter 1, just like Paul did in Romans chapter 15, makes this link between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. He shows us how these two things go together. So two things we're going to look at this morning, and, and the first is just more characteristics of gospel culture, right? It's, Kind of a blasé main point, but there you go. More characteristics of gospel culture. That's what we're going to see in this passage. But then secondly, and most importantly, we're going to see from Paul in this passage how it is that gospel culture grows. How gospel culture grows. So first, characteristics of gospel culture that we see in this passage. A church where gospel culture is growing has certain characteristics. So let's take a look at them. There's a bunch of them in this passage. First, a church where gospel culture is growing is a truth-telling culture. Look at verse 9. Paul writes there, Do not lie to one another. Don't lie to one another. Now, why is it that Paul wrote Colossians? What was going on in the church in Colossae that required him to write this letter and to say something like, Oh, by the way, don't lie to one another. Well, there was some false teaching that was going on in the church in Colossae. The, the message of Colossians, what Paul is wanting to drive home in a nutshell is simply this. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christ is supreme. Christ is transcendent. Christ is preeminent. Christ is enough, more than enough, for everything that you face. Evil has been decisively defeated by him. You are secure forever in him. That's the point that Paul's trying to drive home. It is all about Jesus and what you have in him. What necessitated him saying that? There was some false teaching that was circulating in the church at that time. Uh, really, it kind of boiled down to some people who were setting themselves up as teachers, saying that they had special insight into spiritual things that nobody else had, and that was creating divisions in the church. You could imagine. There were some who were spiritual haves, and others who were spiritual have-nots, or they felt themselves to be. And so, what kind of culture does that create? When some see themselves is elevated above others and, and others feel as though they are actually less than those who would seem to be more spiritual. What happens in a culture like that? People lie to one another. They have to be something more than what they are, right? They can't tell the truth to one another. Now, isn't it great that we live in a culture where nobody has to pretend to be something that they aren't anymore? Of course, we live in a culture that's just like that. This is the one place where people can come together and say, you know what? I can tell the truth about myself. I can tell the truth to you. I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not, and neither do you. We don't have to lie to one another. We don't have to put on a false front. We can just be who we are. So a church where gospel culture is growing is a truth Telling culture. Secondly, it's a difference leveling culture. Look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. We are different. The church of Jesus Christ, broadly speaking, is marvelously different, but our differences do not define us. We have to remember that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. 
We don't lose our distinctives. God, God brings us together in such a way that as we are, we join together in one voice, offering praise to him. A culture of grace is a culture where differences are not eliminated, but leveled. Because the foot of the cross, the ground there, is level. Third, a culture where grace is growing is a disappointment-bearing culture. Now, take a look at verse 12. Verse 12 and verse 13. Let's, let's kind of put this together. What does Paul say here? Put on, then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's the first thing. Second, kindness and humility and meekness. And then he says, we're to be patient with one another. And then he says in verse 13, he begins bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Now we'll come to that latter one in a second. But in what kind of scenario do people find themselves needing to be patient with one another and kind toward one another and compassionate with one another and bear with, or more literally, tolerate one another. It's when we let each other down, which we do. Among other things, it's when we let each other down, when we inevitably disappoint one another, when we give our word on something and then we fail to keep it. When somebody shows up too early because the house isn't clean yet, or they show up too late because you expect everybody early, or they don't show up at all. Right? When we disappoint one another, Paul is saying, you know what? In a place where gospel culture is growing, people bear with one another. They're patient with one another when we let each other down. And then as I mentioned at the end of verse 13, a culture of grace is a culture where sin is being forgiven. It's a sin-forgiving culture. Verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So if you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other, forgiving that other person. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. If, you, if your brother has sinned against you, go and show him his fault. Paul's saying the same thing here. You're willing to tell the truth to someone else about their sin. If last week was, I'm willing to tell you the truth about my sin... This week is, I'm willing to tell you the truth about your sin. But you go ready to forgive. Paul says, if you have a complaint, go forgiving that person. Your impulse, your, your posture is that of a readiness to forgive this person against whom you have a complaint. That's what characterizes a gospel culture, Paul's telling us here in this passage. Finally, a peace, not finally, we've got a few more peace-ruling culture. Take a look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body. What I love there is that there's both this individual aspect of peace and there's a, you know, an objective or a corporate, a community aspect of peace. So Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which you were, y'all, plural, called in one body. So there's this peace that we're offered a, a, a taste of, an experience of, not only internally, but as a church body. In other words, listen to this. The same peace 
that Christ won for you between you and God is the peace that he has secured for us among one another. And in a gospel culture, that reality is being ever more lived into. Sixth, a gospel culture is a word-dwelling culture. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So again, there's this individual and this corporate, this way in which the word is to dwell in you in each of us richly, and yet it finds expression as we speak the truth to one another, as we sing you know, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, as we build each other up. That word that dwells in each of us richly is overflowing into the lives of those around us. That's what's happening in a culture of grace A culture of grace is a Christ-exalting culture. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Christ is over all. His lordship is preeminent in our lives. We look to him. We do all things for him. We recognize that everything good from God comes in him. Christ is exalted in a gospel culture. And then finally, a place where grace is growing is a thanks-offering culture. Look at the end of verse 15. End of verse 15, to indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. End of verse 16, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then end of verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What characterizes a culture of grace? A culture of grace is truth-telling, difference-leveling, disappointment-bearing, sin-forgiving, peace-ruling, word-dwelling, Christ-exalting, thanks-offering culture of grace. So more characteristics of gospel culture just laid out there in that passage for us. Second point, how does it grow? How does it grow? And the first thing you need to see is that it cannot be programmed into existence. It can't be manufactured. When I was a kid, I loved playing with those little plastic toy soldiers, right? The little World War II soldiers. You know, there's the Allies and the Nazis. And I I would set them up in... um, My brother and I shared a bedroom, but we also had a toy room. And I would set up the... The soldiers, you know, with the little howitzers and the tanks and, you know, the guys with the flamethrowers and all that kind of stuff. I set them up on all these, you know, tables and chairs and, and all that kind of stuff. My, bro- my, my younger brother had this annoying habit of coming in and knocking them all down. It drove me crazy. I love you, Chad, if you're watching. But anyway, you know, once you get all those toy soldiers set up, you get the battle set up, what happens when you're done? Nothing happens. The soldiers just sit there. There's no life. There's no activity. Nothing happens. If a church merely creates programs or or gets programs going, that won't be sufficient to cause any actual growth in gospel culture. Now, let me help you think about programs, ministries in a 
positive light by giving you the image of a trellis. Right? A trellis. A trellis cannot cause growth, but it can support it. It can aid it. And what we have when we gather together for worship on Sunday morning, and as we resume growth groups this fall, and as we resume men's breakfast and women's fellowship events, as we resume discipleship time beginning next week, what we have in all these things is a trellis of truth and opportunity. A trellis of truth. The, the gospel is being proclaimed there. Truth is being taught. You can think about that as all the, the vertical rows of wood and, and the, the horizontal going across. Opportunity because we're, we're doing these things together. A trellis of truth an opportunity constructed at Grace Church with, with these ministries that already exist, our worship service now, and then things that are resuming in the next week or so. But again, they are not enough. That trellis is not enough. It won't cause the growth. How then does gospel culture grow? Gospel culture grows when undeserving sinners, that's us, every one of us, Take the gospel to heart in community, together. It happens as we individually take the gospel to heart in community, together. The truth of the gospel must sink deep in us, head to heart. At 18 inches, that may as well be the 2,228 miles from Lutchworth to the Grand Canyon. The gospel must sink from the head to the heart. It must sink deep in us so it will flow from us into the lives of those around us. Then, gospel culture grows. Now, Paul tells us in this passage the one essential gospel truth, the, the, the fundamental, the core gospel doctrine that needs to sink deep. If we get this gospel truth, all other aspects of the truth of the gospel will come with it because we see every aspect of the gospel in light of this truth that Paul has for us in this passage. And it's this, it's what he tells us. He tells us that... We were dead, and we're now raised to life in Christ. That is the fundamental truth of the gospel. It's what Paul says concerning you if your trust is in Jesus. You were dead. Now you are alive. That's the truth. That's your starting point each and every Day. It's not just that you are forgiven. You're forgiven because you're in Christ. And so God looks upon Jesus and says, I will not punish you for your sin because I've already put my wrath that you deserve on Jesus. I see you now in Christ. The reason why your sin is separated as far as the east is from the west is because sin can't get anywhere near Jesus. And I see you in him. You're forgiven. The reason why you're adopted into the household of God is because Jesus is your older brother. Our adoption is in Christ. The reason why we have spiritual life now is because Christ is risen. The reason why we can die to sin is because Jesus bore the death we deserve because of our sin. 
You are alive in Christ. You were once dead in your transgressions and sin. He says it in verse 1. The if then is a since then. It's a rhetorical force. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear. Christ is coming back. And therefore, you will rise and live in glory. All this is true because of what Jesus did and the fact that you are united to him. Everything the Bible says about justification, about being declared righteous in God's sight, about sanctification, about actual progress and holiness and growth into the likeness of Christ, about adoption, about regeneration, about election, being chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. All these gospel truths live under the umbrella of the truth of your union with Christ. Do you realize that in order for God to disown you, he would have to disown Jesus? This is what's true concerning you. Paul says it in Romans chapter 6. I'll just read a few verses there. Verse 1, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Okay, so, you know, there's this picture in Romans of, man, the, the more I sin, the more grace. This, is, this seems like a great arrangement. More sin, more grace. And Paul says, no, if you, if you understand what has happened, he doesn't just say if you're truly grateful. He says if you understand your position now, you'll realize that that logic doesn't make any sense. Verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can you, if you're alive, still live as though you're dead? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jumping down to verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, Paul is saying the same thing back in Colossians. He's saying, you have put off your old self. You have put on your new self. This is past tense, but concerning the new self, he says, it is being renewed day by day after the image of its creator, the one who made the new self that you now wear because you're in Christ is being renewed. This is, oh my, this is glorious. This means everything's changed. Everything's changed. What that means now, Paul says, is this. Live in the reality of who you are. Live in the reality of who you are. Look back at Colossians 3. If then, or since then, you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you, you've died. Your life is now hidden with Christ 
in God. Christ is your life. Your life is so bound up with his life that it can be said that he is your life. This is what's true. Live, Paul says, in light of what is now true concerning you. Listen, growth in holiness is growth in grace. This is not a matter of mind over matter. This is not sola bootstrappa, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is truth over lies. This is what's real over what you feel. This is reality over the darkest nightmare. This is life over death. Paul is saying in this passage, because all these things are now true, because you are united to Christ, his life is flowing, as, as it were, through you. Live in the reality of who you are. If you want to go deeper on that, I want to encourage you to pick up this book, Deeper, by Dane Ortland. Dane Ortland's been producing some amazing stuff. Uh, Gentle and Lowly, uh, if you've seen that, it's a, I commend that one to you. But this subtitle, Real Change for Real Sinners. Really want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Deeper by Dane Ortland. More could be said. Oh my golly. So much more could be said about our union with Christ and all its implications for our life as individuals and consequently as a church body. But recognize this. Because of what is now true about you in Christ, you are able you are empowered by the Spirit of God dwelling in you to live in the reality of who you now are and are being renewed to become all the more. When undeserving sinners take the gospel to heart in community, gospel culture grows. Live in the reality of who you are. In Christ, reckon everything, reckon everything that God says about you. If you are a Christian, reckon it all to be true. I'm going to bank everything. Everything I do, I'm going to bank on what God has said concerning me. That's walking by faith when it comes to your spiritual growth. That's walking by faith. Yes, we're called to walk by faith through the decisions that we make over the course of our life. But do you realize that walking by faith before it's anything else is walking by faith on this journey of discipleship, following Jesus, choosing to believe what he has said about you and rejecting what the world, the flesh, and the devil says concerning you. It will not just change your life. It will change our life together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to take to heart the things that are true. Lord, we are so thankful that everything about our walk with you is already secured by you. When Jesus went to the cross, he defeated Satan forever. Lord, that is what's true. That's true for us. This body of, of sin that each of us struggles with this old man, this flesh, or is dead because of Jesus. Help us to live in the reality of what's true because of your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.